1: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com.
2: Hey there, 1960s TV watcher. Campbell's mechanically reclaimed mystery meat has something brand new just for you. Chicken nuggets! Oh, it's chicken, but it looks like a golden nugget. No skin, no bones, no fuss. We ground up chicken into bite-sized nuggety pieces, coated them in batter and crumbs, and put them in a handy box. Mm. Mm. Chicken nuggets! Yes, everyone's crazy for them. It's chicken, but better. It's the uh, nuggets. Hello, welcome to Patented. It's a podcast about the history of inventions from the fine folk at History Hit. I'm Dallas Campbell. Today, it's the origin story of the chicken nugget, of all things. The most famous chicken nugget of them all, the McDonald's McNugget, turns 40 this year. Happy birthday, McDonald's McNugget. So we are asking, who invented the chicken nugget in the first place? Where did that idea come from? Get ready to meet a towering genius of processed food. Not Ronald McDonald, but a man called Robert Baker who could do anything with a dead chicken. And my guest today is Marin McKenna, writer at Wired Magazine and author of the book Big Chicken. It's finger licking good. Enjoy. Now then, listeners, if you reach for your copies of 1960s agricultural economics research journals, any month will do. Well, if you're familiar with them, which you will be, you will have come across a myriad of ideas for new ways of preparing chicken and eggs, chicken hot dogs, hard-boiled egg logs, which are my favourite, chicken bologna. And amongst all these delicacies is the chicken nugget. This quiet feat of food engineering was apparently the work of Robert Baker. There wasn't much Robert Baker couldn't do with a dead chicken. To begin with, no one paid the chicken nugget much notice. But then in the late 70s, a Scottish chain of restaurants called McDonald's were in desperate need of a new product to put Push. And before you could say the McNugget, the tasty chicken nugget had taken over the world. I should point out that McDonald's aren't Scottish, but I always like to joke and call them the Scottish restaurant because it's muck. Maren, lovely to have you with us. Thank you very much for taking the time. Have you written two books on chickens? You've written Big Chicken and you've written Plucked.
0: I've written three books, but only one of them was about chicken. It just happens that it has a different name on different sides of the Atlantic.
2: Oh, I was so confused about that because I'm like, the copy I've got is called Plucked. Which is what it was called in the UK. And then what happened in America? Did they not call it They called it something else?
0: The book is Big Chicken in America and it came out in the US first, but then it was sold to a publisher in the UK that was willing to be a little edgier about the title. <laughs> and so they thought about different kinds of titles and they said, well, what about
2: plucked. (laughs) Why do they want it edgier? It's a book about big chicken, which is a really interesting subject. I mean, it's fascinating, your book, and it's really, really interesting. And your work is really interesting. You write about public health in various different guises. Okay, so Robert Baker, before we tell us who Robert Baker was, I'm interested, perhaps you could paint us a little bit of a picture. Okay, it's 1963. We're at Cornell University, Can you take us through the moment, or is there such a moment where the chicken nugget was invented?
0: So the chicken nugget, what Robert C. Baker, this Cornell professor, called at the time the chicken stick, related in his mind to fish sticks, but not exactly like them, which we'll get to in a minute, does arrive in that Cornell University basement in 1963. But in order to understand how and why that happened, we actually have to back up a little bit to consider a couple of different things. One is that before the 1960s, the only way you could buy a chicken in most parts of the United States and Canada and Western Europe and the UK was to buy a whole chicken to go to a market or a butcher and there would be an entire chicken in a case. If you happened to have a very bespoke butcher, they might kindly cut it up for you before you took it home. That was sort of annoying for women who were the cooks for households, as well as shopping for households, to have to deal with broiling or pan frying or roasting a chicken for an everyday evening meal. And this is after World War II, when women are starting to enter the workforce and are looking for things to be less complicated in their home lives, not more complicated. So cooking a chicken was a little more complicated than like slinging a chop onto a pan, or shoving a steak onto a grill, So first, chicken was difficult to deal with in the marketplace as a foodstuff. The second is there was a lot of chicken in the world, because during World War II, all of the Allied forces had encouraged their meat production systems to spool up and create more infrastructure and grow a lot more animals to feed soldiers and sailors. And then the war ended... And that guaranteed market went away, and there was all this excess capacity and a lot of animals being grown. So there's lots of animals, and they're all competing in the marketplace, and chickens are difficult. So at a certain point, the chicken industry, and this happens in the US, which had the biggest chicken industry on the planet at the time, the chicken industry says, we are stuck, because what's actually going to make a difference to our future is not growing more birds. It's going to be convincing people to buy more birds. And that was in the hands of the housewives who didn't want to deal with taking an entire chicken home and having to roast it on a weekend night. Because if you only bought chickens to roast for Sunday lunch, let's say, that was not going to solve the capacity problems of the chicken industry. So into this walks this professor, Robert C. Baker. So Robert C. Baker was the son of a farm family. He came from upstate New York, from the borders of the Great Lakes, which is actually a really lovely place for agriculture. It sounds like it's very far north, but because of the lakes, it's got a very mild climate. His family were fruit farmers. He got a degree in fruit agriculture, and he wanted to return to this big, beautiful Gothic-looking university, Cornell University, that is funded since the 1800s. Since the mid-1800s, there's this set of universities that were funded to be the places where people learned about agriculture and land management and so forth. Cornell was the leading one of those. So Robert C. Baker went to Cornell to be a food science professor, and he took on as his personal mission, solving the problem of chicken.
2: Can I just ask, at this time, Had the idea of convenience food and processed food caught on yet? Are we part of that sort of post-war wave of, I mean, you mentioned the fish finger, this idea that convenience food suddenly took off in the 1950s, really. Is that where we are?
0: We are. Fish fingers, fish sticks on this side, came out in 1953. And they're really fairly uncomplicated as a processed food goes because you take a frozen fish a big fish.
2: Freezing is the important bit, the ability to freeze.
0: Hard freezing. And you basically run it through a bandsaw, right? So you've got like slices of frozen fish, very solid. And then you can put crumbs and batter around it, and then you can freeze it again. And voila, you have a fish stick. And people were relying more on canned foods. Clarence Birdseye was probably perfecting frozen vegetables about the time. We
2: love him. We did an episode on Clarence Birdseye.
0: But no one had really done this for chicken yet. And Robert C. Baker's great insight was that he could take chicken and do to chicken what, in a organic way, people had been doing to other meat animals for centuries. You could take them and you could make sausages out of them, or you could pickle them, or you could
2: smoke them, or you could dry them instead of just having a thing that you took home and roasted. First of all, I want to know, like what was his interest in this? Like, Where did his interest come in? I can understand if you're interested in food, you might want to go and be a farmer or something, but why the idea of processing food? Was he being financed by food companies or... At Cornell, whilst at Cornell? All the land-grant universities have funding
0: from various agricultural interests. I think that's taken for granted. But he wasn't specifically funded by the chicken industry as we understand it today. Because another thing that was going on in the background was that before World War II, in the US, the chicken industry, such as it was, was kind of all over the country. But after World War II, it started drifting down to the East Coast and the South. And even today, the center of the chicken industry in the United States is in the state of Georgia. And secondarily, in the little piece of land that's shared by Maryland and Delaware that's just below Washington DC. So chicken farming was becoming not competitive for the farmers that Baker came from, from the area where his childhood had been spent. And then I think it's also really important to think about where we are to understand Baker's personality He was a child of the depression who had grown up on a farm where they would really have felt the pinch of very little income. And they were probably the sort of people who save every bread bag and every scrap of string and you know, wash the aluminum foil and things like that. So he was very innately thrifty. And my sense is that he was just offended on a sort of moral level by the fact that people were growing these chickens and couldn't figure out what to do with them. And if you think about a chicken relative to let's say a cow, the proportion of muscle versus bone on a cow is very different from a chicken. There's a lot of meat on a cow. There's not relatively speaking a lot of waste. For the amount of muscle they have on them, chickens have a lot of bones. And so,
2: in a whole bunch of ways chickens
0: were just kind of not competitive with other meat animals.
2: We are quite picky about chickens. I have to say it's funny. I spent a bit of time in China and when you eat chicken in China, you ain't eating the white breast meat. You're eating gristle and you're eating feet. Not in a kind of like they're trying to hide the fact that it's feet. It's like you buy chicken's feet and you eat them. And The idea of just eating the breast meat of a chicken or the tenderloin or whatever is ridiculous. It seems to be that that's a very American, UK wasteful way. We're
0: pretty finicky. Yeah.
2: We are a bit finicky.
0: You buy a chicken in China and it's a whole chicken if it's cooked and they put it on the big chopping block and they deploy their giant cleaver and they go chop, 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 chop. And suddenly you have 50 pieces of chicken, each of which has a piece of bone in them. And you are expected to deal with that. right? But Brits and Americans not
2: really into that. We'll come onto that because I want to talk about chlorine in a minute. Okay. So he's interested in food and he's thrifty and he's the child of the depression. He's at Cornell. He wants to be a food scientist. And he wants to save
0: these chicken farmers who are among the farmers that he's grown up with and find a way to keep those people in the market as the market is sliding to the Southern US and chickens becoming more and more concentrated. So what he decides to do is to essentially break chicken free of its bones. Solve this problem of there not being a lot of chicken accessible if you buy a whole chicken by harvesting every scrap of meat off a chicken carcass and then figuring out what to do
2: with it. So things that I mentioned, sausages... Bologna. How do I pronounce it? We just say bologna in the US. Bologna. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for, bologna. Bologna sounds so much more fancy. Trust me, I'm not fancy. But yes, bologna. That's what I used to call it when I was a kid anyway. And also eggs as well. I mentioned at the beginning there, that sort of long egg roll thing, which can only happen by magic, I assume.
0: So Cornell University gave Baker a basement laboratory in one of its big, fancy, gothic-looking buildings. And they gave him a bunch of graduate students. And he said, I'm going to take this team of people and this place, and we are going to save the chicken. Now, he probably didn't say it in exactly those words, but that was his point of view.
2: Well, I like to think he did say it in exactly those words, maybe with a bolt of lightning behind him. <laughs> and a <kind> of <laughs> or a of cape thunder. or
0: some fluttering in the breeze, something like that.
2: Yeah, he did wear a cape, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, I don't think so. He did wear a white coat, though. You can see in pictures of him, him and all his graduate students have very professional medical-looking white coats on them. So they started figuring out what are all the things we could do with chicken if we detach chicken from its bones and its head and its feet and things like that. And they came up with prepackaging chicken meatloaf making chicken sausage, making chicken bologna, making chicken burgers, all the things that we kind of take for granted now when we walk into a supermarket and see things made with chicken, chicken sausages, and so forth. Those didn't really exist before Robert C. Baker started tinkering. And to say that this was not all theoretical for him. Like he wasn't just coming up with something and feeding it to his graduate students and saying, all right, let's move on. Well, let's move on from sausages to meatloaf to whatever. They actually worked on marketing as well. So they would come up with not just with the object, the thing made of meat, but also like packaging. They'd design their own packaging and then they'd take it to local supermarkets and they'd test sell it, and they'd ask the supermarket to keep records. And that way, they were essentially testing the viability of their products, not just as hypothetical things, but as something that someone was actually going to buy
2: and take home and cook for the kids. And in this sort of group, I'm just imagining him and his sort of postdoc students, did they just say, oh, I know, why don't we do this? Was it kind of a bit of a free-for-all creative think outside the envelope, let's just see what happens. Yes, exactly. They made some terrible things and they made some great things.
0: About 10 years ago, I interviewed one of Robert C. Baker's children, Dale Baker, who remembers his dad bringing home all these experiments from the lab.
2: (laughs) Right, yeah.
0: Kids were having chicken sausage tonight, or kids were having chicken meatloaf tonight. And some of them they liked, and some of them they didn't.
2: So you've painted us this lovely picture, cut back to 1963, Tell us about the nuggets. So that's a move away from just the sausage or bologna or.
0: Well, but he was doing the same thing. He was trying to figure out how to use the maximum amount of chicken and incur the minimum amount of waste. And by 1963, fish sticks, fish fingers, have been on the market for 10 years. And you can see how unbelievably popular they are because they've made handling fish in a home kitchen, which kind of like a whole chicken is a kind of difficult, slimy, smelly thing to do. You have to make sure your knives are sharp and you have to deal with all the bones and things like that. Fish fingers transformed how the middle class ate fish. And I think anybody who grew up in the 60s, 70s, 80s can remember they probably had fish sticks at least once a week, right? Certainly, if you were in a Catholic family and you had to eat fish on Fridays, fish fingers were like the thing that you ate. So he had 10 years of looking back at fish sticks and thinking, we ought to be able to do this as well. But there were some actual mechanical problems in the way. Which is that, as we talked about a minute ago, if you're making a fish stick, it's not actually that complicated because you take the very large fish, you take the fillets off, you freeze those very hard, you essentially run them through a bandsaw, and then you put stuff on the outside. But if you did that to a chicken, if you used the whole muscle of a chicken, you'd only get a couple of sticks out of each bird. And again, Baker was someone who hated waste. So he found a way to harvest things from all the bits of the chicken carcass, and to grind them together with some additives, primarily salt and vinegar at the time, so that all of the ground up meat would stick together really firmly, more firmly than like a sausage would. So they solved that problem. Then they had to figure out if they were going to bread it like a fish stick, how could they make the breading stick to this mush they just created? And how could they make it continue to stick when they froze it, and then when they fried it or baked it? So they did many, many tests with different ways of different stuff in the batter, different kind of crumbs. And in 1963, they felt like they'd nailed it. And so they wrote up their results, the entire process from chicken to box to marketing tests, all the different things they tried in this monthly bulletin that Cornell published as part of its responsibility as a land-grant university And it went out to hundreds and
2: hundreds of libraries all around the US. If the fish stick or the fish finger was this, well, inspiration, you know, in terms of the processing, why didn't they make chicken? Was it a stick first before it became a nugget? Did it look like a fish stick? Was it kind of long and stick-like? In the original agricultural bulletin, Which was just, you know, black and white, sort of looks like
0: it was done on a mimeograph machine, even though it was actually printed by a printer. It looks like a fish stick. It's long and square. It's about four inches by an inch by half an inch or something like that. Because they wanted people to look at the chicken stick and think, That's like the thing that I already feed my family.
2: Yeah. So it's familiar. There's a familiarity. It's not too novel.
0: Right. Intellectually, I can put this in the same place in my weekly menu rotation where the fish sticks are.
2: Just take us through the recipe again. So the chicken is minced. It has various binding agents. It has salt and vinegar. What does the vinegar do? Is it just for flavoring? Is it just for taste?
0: No, I think actually it was more there for chemical reasons that one of the problems they were facing was that ground up chicken wouldn't necessarily stick to itself. And if you think about it, there wasn't going to be a skin around it the way you would make a sausage, right? So they had to make it stick to itself without something giving it structural integrity from the outside. So what they needed to do was increase the internal stickiness of the protein in the muscle. And the way they did that was they put salt and vinegar in with the minced up chicken, and then they just ground it, ground it, ground it. And some of the protein in the muscle sort of migrated outside The muscle cells, in a way I don't really understand, and made it all stickier.
1: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? sing, muses. Sing to me a history of Olympus and the deathless gods who govern earth, sea and sky. That is Zeus's command.
2: It's the Ancients from History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and every month on the podcast we're taking a deep dive into the Olympian gods. None of them are as simple or as single-faceted as we've kind of reduced them to in our heads when we think about the gods of the pantheon who do one thing each. With world-leading experts, we'll be telling the dramatic story of who they are.
0: Aphrodite was the goddess of love and sex and passion, and specifically, she was considered often to be love itself.
2: The myths and their meanings. Hephaestus was already there, and that he split Zeus's head with an axe in order to liberate Athena from Zeus's head and how they've influenced the course of history. Imagine ourselves back in the footsteps of people who are trying to explain and understand the world around them. A world which is not fair or just. That gets us into an absolute key facet of how to understand the ancient Greek gods, which is that they are not good people. Join us as we explore some of the most fascinating deities history has ever known. Listen and follow on the ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. So, we've got this chick stick, which is like a fish stick, chicken finger. Why did they freeze it? Was freezing part of the thing like it was with fish? Or was it like, we'll do it exactly like they do with fish fingers? Captain Birdseye.
0: They hard froze them and then they invented a box, which looked kind of like the boxes that donuts come in now in the US and that it was cardboard and it had a little glassine window so you could see the chicken sticks inside it. They invented a label, which didn't say anything about Cornell or laboratories or anything like that. And they took these down to the local supermarket, and they ran tests on the size of the box and the number of sticks in the box and what the names were and so forth and then they took all that data back because again, they wanted to make sure that these things had real world appeal right This was not just a, an academic exercise, and they calculated what was the best number of sticks in a box and the right size of a box and
2: so forth and then they published it. So that's 1963. So we've got this new chick stick. It's still not a chicken nugget though, like a chicken nugget, as I think a chicken nugget, the McDonald's McNugget, which seems to be the standard chicken nugget that springs to mind. I don't think I've ever had a McDonald's chicken nugget, ever. I don't remember ever having one, but maybe I have. I've had them for research, yes. I'm sure they're delicious. They're carefully engineered to be delicious. Okay.
0: So you would think, after all this research, that in 1963, when this is published, suddenly the world is going to change, right? Well, that doesn't happen. These publications that Cornell is putting out, their agricultural extension bulletins, go into libraries and companies and so forth all across the US, anyone who's interested in the moving forward of the food market. But nothing immediately happens with the chicken stick until a couple of other sort of trends or events happen more than 10 years later to make a difference to the future of chicken. The first is that in 1977, the US government for the first time sets what it calls Dietary Guidelines for Americans, which is a publication by the US Department of Agriculture that basically says, here's what we think you should be eating to be a healthy population. It's where our famous food pyramid comes from that assigns what you should be eating at different times of day. So 1977, for the first time, the USDA says, we think Americans are eating too much saturated fat.
2: That's the year that Elvis died. It could be connected.
0: (laughs) I don't think it said anything about peanut butter and banana sandwiches. But what it did say was Americans are eating too much saturated fat. We can see that because our rates of cardiac disease are too high. Now, almost everyone instantly understood that when the USDA said too much saturated fat, what they were actually saying was too much red meat, because that's the major source of saturated fat in American diets. Some dairy, some cheese, some butter, but for the most part, they were aiming at red meat. So in this remarkably sudden moment, Everyone turns their attention from red meat to white meat, to chicken, and also to fish. But Americans historically have never eaten that much fish. We you know where so much of the country's landlocked, fish is just not that normal for us. But chicken was very normal. And so this gave a huge boost to interest in chicken and to turning people toward ways to eat more chicken. And... McDonald's, the corporation, was already looking for ways to expand its footprint and its menu across the United States. They were, as a company like that does, they were always looking for new products, always looking for new ways to get more people in. And in the sort of official history of the chicken nugget, which is contained in a book called, I think, Beneath the Arches, which was published in the 80s. There is a story that the CEO of McDonald's, the founder, and their executive chef were having conversations about what's the next thing, like what's the thing beyond burgers, right? I think they may even have had a fish stick sandwich at the time. So their official history is that their executive chef had the idea to make what we now know as the
2: chicken nugget. Do we know, if they're looking at that chick stick, at what point do they go, I know, that. why don't we make it shorter? or just like a lump.
0: This is the black box that this history disappears into. Because as far as the official history is concerned, The nugget sprung full-blown from the mind of this executive chef of McDonald's. But everyone in the poultry industry takes for granted that someone in the chain of creation must have read those Cornell bulletins because they were so widely known in the food industry. And somehow that idea of a chicken stick had stuck in someone's mind and inspired the creativity that became The Nugget. Do we know who that chef was? Yeah, his name was Renee
2: Arend, I think was the name. Yeah, it is something like that. You're absolutely right. So you reckon he would have looked at those Cornell documents and had the idea? I know, well, let's... So this makes it sound like he sharked the idea. Well, you can't copyright a stick. You
0: (laughs) You can't copyright (laughs) a stick. You can't, in United States law, you can't copyright a recipe either. And I think almost everything in the processed food world is built on some kind of iteration. Like someone has an idea and then there's another idea and another idea. And this would have been taken from a publicly funded publication, right? So there was no question of there being a patent for anything that Cornell was putting out. They probably would consider that differently today, but there were no patents on food ideas in the 1960s. So there's this concept floating around in libraries and in people's heads that you could do something with minced up chicken that would make it easy to eat. And that maybe people would respond positively to that. So McDonald's embarks on a secret skunkworks kind of crash course to try to make something that is made out of chicken that is not a burger. And they came up with the nugget and they trialed it at a couple of McDonald's restaurants, secretly just put it on the menu one day in the middle of the country and completely blew the doors off. Just insane. And so they instantly said, well, we have to get chicken nuggets into every single one of our burger places. And within a couple of years, they did. By 1980, chicken nuggets were being sold in McDonald's all across the United States.
2: And am I right in thinking, not being a McDonald's chicken nugget expert, that there's three different shapes, isn't there? There's like the boot, the bell, and something else. And they all look roughly the same, but there's three different McNugget shapes. Well, did I dream that?
0: I am not a scholar of the modern McNugget. I am sorry I'm just wondering why
2: those shapes, because if I was doing shapes, I'd be like all kinds of fun shapes you can do.
0: So I think it's important to say that when they first debuted back in the late 70s and 80s, chicken nuggets were more like Baker's invention in that they were made of minced up chicken. But what McDonald's says now is that they are actually made of whole muscle. So they're not made of like the stuff that's all like Wished up together.
2: I think that's true, actually. From what I gather, I, I watched a video on YouTube, so it must be true, where they say, yes, we just use the white breast. I mean, there's still lots of additives in it. There's, you know, all the things that you mentioned, plus other things. It's interesting. So, there, a, a massive hit from about 1980, and they sweep the nation, and everyone's eating chicken nuggets for the obvious reason that they contain fat and lots of salt and are therefore deli- and delicious.
0: And they're easy to eat, right? And in the US, which is such a car culture, nuggets became a thing that it was easy to, you know, you could drive through McDonald's if you're out shopping or coming home from school or something like that. You can drive through, get a box of nuggets, hand it to your kid in the back seat. They don't need a plate. You know, there's no bun that's going to slip out of their hands. There's just nuggets from box to gob. And they were so popular that nuggets went from being a thing that was served in restaurants if you consider a McDonald's a restaurant into food production for the home so if you walk into a supermarket now there's probably an entire aisle of frozen chicken nuggets you know they're shaped like stars and dinosaurs and barbie and they've got different flavors and they come in giant bags but all of that's because McDonald's introduced the idea to the market. And McDonald's introduced the idea to the market because of Robert C. Baker 17 years before.
2: Why do they have such a bad reputation now? I mean, certainly in the UK, someone like Jamie Oliver, who's done an awful lot for food in the UK, pretty much got rid of the idea of the turkey twizzler, which is a bit like a chicken nugget, I imagine with a different name. But certainly all kinds of stories about the chicken nugget, and they're made from this kind of pink slime and... They just don't have a good reputation now. And I'm wondering how that reputation started. So I
0: think it's really interesting to think about the fact that the chicken nugget came out of these parallel movements of trying to make food more affordable and trying to make food healthier, because they were born at that moment when the US government was trying to make people eat less fatty food. And it's really interesting and ironic that it becomes this thing that everybody eats too much of, right? That it's a fried thing that gets sold not in a box of four, but in a box of 20. And you can eat 20 of them as you're driving home from McDonald's to your house with your groceries, because anything worth doing is worth overdoing, right? I mean, we bear some responsibility for making the nugget as popular as it has been. Yeah. You know, obviously the fast food companies and all food companies exist to sell more of their product. And all the things that are now put into highly processed food, most of them being chemicals that did not exist at the time that Robert C. Baker was working. Um, I mean, his recipe is very uncomplicated, but all of those additives are in there, not just to improve the performance of the food as it's being cooked or served or transported, but also to make us want more of them. So, as a society, we're both victims of those developments, but we also kind of participated in our own victimhood, right? At any
2: moment, it would be possible to walk into the supermarket and not walk down the chicken nugget aisle. trouble is it's convenience. It is that thing of you don't have to think about boning a chicken or even cooking a chicken. You just know you shove it on a baking tray and stick it in the oven and it'll taste good. It's a victim of its own success. I mean, it's interesting that actually I was looking at Snopes, you know, Snopes.com that debunk various urban myths and moral panics and such. And that chicken nugget one keeps coming up a lot. This idea, there's a photograph of this kind of pink goo that comes out. And this is what chicken nuggets are. But that's not true. It's not that, is it? Certainly in the United
0: States, the major trade association, which is called the National Chicken Council, has spent a lot of time and energy doing that debunking, that the stuff that people call pink slime, the technical term for which is mechanically separated chicken, does not go into chicken nuggets, that it's used in things like as a binder in chicken lunch meats, chicken bologna, perhaps, or chicken sausages. But it it is not,
2: in fact, an ingredient in nuggets. In your books, you write about chicken more broadly now, particularly about things like antibiotics, and you talk about antibiotic resistance. I'm wondering what you think the future of the chicken nugget is, because we seem to have entered this food apartheid time, where certain people eat this type of food, and other people eat this type of food. And I wonder if we're ever going to get rid of that. I think the future of chicken is going to be really
0: interesting. And again, there's a lot of sort of cross-cutting trends pushing this along. The first is that chicken is becoming the... Meat that is eaten most, the meat animal that's grown and eaten most around the world. There's a couple of academics who have proposed that chicken is, they call it the bird of the Anthropocene, this historical moment we're at where all of the world has been transformed by human activity. And they imagine that, you know, a thousand years from now, when archaeologists are digging up our civilization, or maybe 10,000 years from now, what they're going to find is a layer of chicken bones. So it's not entirely bad. That chicken is becoming so common around the world because, in climate terms, to raise a chicken is less burden on the planet than to raise a pig or to raise a cow. You know, you can grow chickens in a smaller spot. You don't need so much land as you do for cows or pigs. It's something that's more accessible to people of low income, particularly in low and middle income countries where the economies are rising. And when economies are rising, people just very predictably spend their new income on meat. So chicken is sort of like the gateway drug to being able to eat meat. So that's one thing that's going on is the chicken all around the world. Chicken consumption is rising. The second is that not just chicken nuggets, but the Western fast food companies have become a sort of symbol of westernization for low and middle income countries. You said you've eaten in China, you know, I think any of us who traveled to the Pacific Rim or to Southeast Asia have had the experience of walking out into an airport lounge and seeing a McDonald's right there, or a KFC right there, or a Burger King or something like that, that those chains represent for other parts of the world modernity and westernization. And they're kind of cool at the same time that those of us where they originated think of them in a very different way. So the forces of commercialization and the forces of expanding agriculture are pushing us toward more and more chicken consumption. And Is everybody going to roast chickens? Is everybody going to braise chickens the way a French farmyard cook would? No, you know, people are going to eat more chicken nuggets.
2: It's interesting, the chicken nugget, foodstuff and political symbol, an economic symbol and symbol of all kinds of things. I wonder in the future, as we are told and perhaps want to eat less meat for the obvious reasons, we'll get the McCricket or the locust. given insects are quite popular, I can't see it. Well, actually, you know, the amazing thing is that artificial meat, which really was not good a handful of years ago. I remember doing a piece about it 10 years ago, and it was inedible. Now, like Beyond Burger and all these artificial meats are just fantastic. You can't really tell the difference.
0: And in some of the fast food chains in the US, you can buy Beyond Burgers, Impossible Burgers, things like that. I think it's Burger King who was selling them. I am not up on meat substitutes. But those companies go where the market is, right? They are in a constant dance between fulfilling a market demand that they think is emerging and creating a market demand that doesn't yet exist. And so if lab-grown meat or plant-based meat or insect burgers are things that consumers seem to be open to turning to, you know the companies will be there.
2: Yeah, exactly. Good point. Marin. thank you so much for joining us and taking the time to beautifully illustrate this it's funny, I shall never look at a chicken McNuggets again. I was going to say it in the same way. I was going to say, actually, maybe not again ever.
0: You will look at them and instead of thinking of them as the shame of the middle class, you will think of them as the apathy of this poor, lonely professor in his basement trying to make the world
2: better. Exactly. I'm going to think of him. And I'm, certainly, I don't eat them for snobbish reasons. I miss the McNugget, so maybe I'm going to go and order some, And then I can have one in his honor, I think. There we go. I will. Thank you very much, Mary. Of course so there we go thanks very much for listening if you're enjoying the show don't forget to catch up with all of our other episodes don't forget to hit subscribe and like and you know all that kind of stuff and don't forget to tell your friends and family and all those people who are close to you what a good series it is i hope you've been enjoying it don't forget as well to get in touch if you've got a suggestion for a topic or an idea or a story that we should cover, you can email us at patented@historyhit.com Thank you very much for your company, as ever. And I look forward to seeing you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours. Of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code PATENTED at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.